It's good to see all of you this morning as we continue on in our Daniel series in Daniel chapter 9. Um, this morning is kind of a fun passage for those of you who have been with us through the series thus far. The past couple of weeks have been, uh, have, have been interesting. And so, uh, and so this morning represents a bit, of a, a bit of a change of pace in that there are no mutated angelic creatures this morning in our passage. There are no goats that fly across the surface of the ground who never actually connect because they're moving so quickly. There are no weird things like that in our passage. Um, rather, in our passage this morning, we get back to something that's a little more... Uh, maybe something that we're a little more comfortable with, something, that, uh, something that's a little bit more normal to us. This morning, we get to look at an example of prayer, an example of prayer from the life of Daniel. Um, it's a beautiful example as we see one of God's people responding to all of these prophecies, responding to all of these things that God has communicated. And what does his response look like? It's a, it's a response of prayer, a powerful prayer that he lifts up to the Lord. Um, we, uh, my, my family and I, we, we used to have a Grand Jeep Cherokee that I loved. It was, it was a really fun vehicle. I got a lot of use out of it and all. Um, but I, I was driving along one day, and, uh, and all of a sudden it started to peter out like it was running out of gas. But I looked at the gas gauge, and the gas gauge said I had three-quarters of a tank still. And I thought, what? What's going on? And then I looked at my miles and realized, oh, my gas gauge doesn't work anymore. <laughs> Here I was, and it actually took, took, took a few more, uh, few more occasions of that happening before I finally started setting my tripometer to keep track of it a little more closely. But, uh, you know, here I was driving along in this car that I thought had power, and all of a sudden it left me stranded on the roadside. I think sometimes we feel feel like that in our prayer lives. Like we go into this prayer time thinking, thinking that something great is going to happen, thinking that there's power, and then we leave that prayer time feeling like maybe it just petered out. Like maybe it just didn't have the power that we were expecting. So this morning, I think looking at, looking at this prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 will be helpful and instructive for us as we see an example of what powerful prayer looks like. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Again, this is Daniel chapter 9. We'll read through it together. Um, verses 1 through 19. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, I think I pronounced that correctly, Ahasuerus, um, by descent, a Mede who, uh, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of, of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, 
But to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. We have confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us. By bringing upon us a great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity of our... The, um, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, our Lord, and now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Our Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy city, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your sake, O my God, because your city and, and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for this example that you give us in Daniel, Lord, of prayer and what it looks like to enter into your presence. Father, I pray that your word would be instructive for us this morning, God, that it would be shaping. Father, that your spirit would be working this morning as we hear your word in such a way as to conform our minds and our hearts and our very souls to you and to your will and to what you have for your people. God, please just work powerfully, Father, as we hear your word this morning. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So our passage this morning opens up. A number of years have passed since Daniel's last prophecy. We're looking at probably about 12 years have passed since then. 
And Daniel has just seen significant political transition. The Babylonian Empire has fallen to the Medo-Persians. Just as Daniel has been prophesying for much of the book of Daniel, it has finally come to fruition, Babylon has fallen. The year we're in is probably about 539. The, um, the Medo-Persians have come to power. This is uh, Darius, is, the, is currently the king. This is the same Darius that was spoken about back in Daniel 6, the infamous Darius, who uh, is in every children's story Bible for throwing Daniel to the lion's den. This is the Darius who is currently presiding as king in the wake of this political vacuum, in the wake of the destruction of Babylon. Daniel begins his prayer, or Daniel begins in verse 2, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. All right, so in our situation here then, Daniel, Daniel has been doing his morning devotions in the book of Jeremiah. He's been reading and studying the book of Jeremiah. And as he's been reading, he's, he's realized something significant. Jeremiah is one of the Old Testament um, Jewish prophets. And we see probably in, in something like Jeremiah 25, verses 8 to 12, this is probably what Daniel's been reading. It reads this. It reads, verses 8 to 12, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Okay, so this is, this is back prior to the Babylonian exile. Uh, maybe, maybe 605, somewhere around there. Maybe when they just began, um, just began their political wage. And Jeremiah is looking forward to all of the destruction that Babylon would bring. And this is what he's prophesying. Um, that for, my, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. That this land there is Jerusalem. I will bring Babylon against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone, and the light of the lamp. The whole land, again, Jerusalem, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So it's likely that it's a passage like this one that Daniel has been reading. Daniel sees the coming, or Daniel sees in the book of Jeremiah that Babylon's takeover, this exile, was all prophesied. This was all part of God's plan in response to his people's sinfulness. But there's a glimmer of hope that this exile was only supposed to be a 70-year exile. And then God would eventually restore his people. 
Jeremiah has, seen the con- has foreseen the conquest of the Babylons and is prophesying about how extensive the de- devastation would be. The city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed. The people would be taken in exile to Babylon. And this was the consequence of the, of what the, uh, of the sins of the Israelites. But there is this hope that Jeremiah holds out that eventually the people would be restored. We see this in passages like Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. Again, Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Once the 70 years is completed, God would visit his people, his people who are in exile, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. There was a restoration there was hope. God wasn't done with his people yet. It goes on with a very familiar passage, probably for many of you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is my favorite part. Here's the kicker. And, and then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Remember, Daniel's reading this passage. He's seen the fall of the Babylonian Empire. And what is his response? Prayer, just as is prophesied in Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from, from which I, I sent you into exile. Jer- um, Daniel is looking at the current events. Daniel is reading his newspaper or looking at his online app. Daniel sees what's unfolding. He sees the end of the Babylonian exile. or He sees the end of Babylon. And he rightly recognizes the 70 years have come to an end. It's time to go home. And so what does he do? Verse 3, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him, seeking God by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He prays to God. He prays. So Daniel reads Jeremiah. And it's interesting to note here in our passage in Daniel, when he reads, when he reads the word of Jeremiah, what does he refer to it as? He says, according to the word of the Lord. That's what he calls Jeremiah's prophecy. That's what he calls the book of Jeremiah here, according to the word of the Lord. So so Daniel is calling the book of Jeremiah God's very word, Scripture. It's God's very speaking to his people. It's not just a book written by Jeremiah, though it is certainly that as well. It is also God's word to his people. Not just Jeremiah's word to an ancient people, but God's current word to Daniel and God's people for all of time. It's not just a book, but it is actually God speaking. That's how it works. God God speaks to his people, and what do we see in Daniel? We see his people respond. God speaks, we respond. Conversation with God is almost like breathing. I've I've heard heard this metaphor used for it before, and I really like it. Conversation with God is almost like breathing, where we breathe in God's word and we exhale prayer. He speaks to us, 
and we respond in turn. I think oftentimes we prefer more of a one-way conversation with God where I go to God and I tell him all of the things that I want or all the things that he should fix for me and that ends up being the foundation of a lot of my prayer life. I tell him all of my wise counsel. I tell him all the things that he should do differently because, well, if you ask my wife and my children, I have a lot of great ideas and a lot of wisdom to dispense. So it makes sense that he would follow my suggestions, right? Um, I go to God with all of these things and I tell him these things and then I, and then I sit and I, I, I wait for him to respond to all of my wisdom um, because I just have so much to give out. But going back to breathing, going back to breathing, if, we, if we're trying to exhale, but we haven't inhaled God's word yet, what happens? Well, we, we have a very short, a very shallow breath to exhale. And that's what our prayers end up looking like. Very short and very shallow without much power and without much value. Our breath should be full and deep full and deep. And to do that, we need to be taking in God's word. We should, we should, we shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't, when we pray, expect to see heaven and earth move to open up that parking spot for us. When we haven't been listening to God and letting his word shape our very prayer life. Does that mean God doesn't open parking spots? No, of course he does open parking spots too. But if that's the majority of your prayer life is for that parking spot or for what have you to happen, then you're probably missing the mark of what God has genuinely called us to in prayer. He has something so much better and so much richer for you. Our conversations with God are a spiritual dance in which God takes the lead. God leads and his people respond. And this is what we see Daniel doing. He's taking in the very word of the Lord, and here specifically it's promises, and he's exhaling them in prayer. It's God's promises that orient Daniel's prayers. It's a beautiful prayer of God's promises because it's aligning. It's aligning. When we pray God's promises, it aligns our prayers to God's very will for us and his very will for all of creation. And God delights to use your prayers in this sort of powerful way. God delights to use your prayer to accomplish his promises, which is, again, exactly what we're going to see happening in Daniel. Daniel could step back and say, well, God's promised it, so clearly I don't have anything to contribute here. But that's not what happens. And that's not what God calls his people to God calls his people to join in his work through these powerful prayers. But to be able to do this, we have to know God's word. We have to know his promises. Have you made it a habit to learn the scriptures and to learn God's promises? Do you know what things he has promised us if we ask? I think we end up spending a majority of our time praying about things that we know very little about or find very little room in his word. And rather, we focus on those things instead of God's words and his promises where he invites us to do all sorts of amazing things. 
Is your prayer life conformed by God's will or is your prayer life conformed by your will? I think at the end of the day, a heart that is cold to hear words from God will be cold to speak words to God. And with that, Daniel launches into his prayer. He begins his prayer in verse four with a celebration of God's character, with a celebration of God's character. He states that he prayed to the Lord my God. Now, remember, Daniel has spent a majority of his life in a polytheistic context, meaning there are many gods all around. So Daniel is very clear in his prayer about who he's petitioning, who he's lifting this prayer up to. This is a prayer that's lifted up to my God, my God, specifically the Lord my God. Now, it's interesting, you'll notice that in your English translation, Lord, there is in all caps. The, your English Bible does that. It's an, it's an English convention to represent the Hebrew word there for Yahweh, God's name, the name that God had given his people in the book of Exodus, the, God that, the, the name that God had given to his people to represent, to reflect his covenantal relationship with them. This was, this was the God, this was the name of God that indicated that they had a depth of relationship. Um, and this is the same God that Daniel reflected his relationship with. Remember, this is Daniel who we know has been a regular prayer to God, so much so that even, even those who disliked him recognized him as a man of prayer. He is setting aside at least three times daily at this point in his life to go to God in prayer. So he begins by unfolding then in his prayer some of the excellencies of God and his character. He begins with adoration of God's character and who God is. Notice he calls him here the great and awesome God. Great and awesome God. It's interesting. So that Hebrew expression for great, awesome God, that only occurs a few times in the Old Testament. One of those times, most of those times are referring to God. One of the times is referring to the wilderness that the Israelites were about to enter into. And there, that translation could be vast and terrifying. Vast and terrifying. So instead of great and awesome, it could be vast and terrifying in reference to the land that the people were to enter into. In other words, it was huge. It was huge and it was overwhelming. That's the sense that Daniel's trying to capture as he's describing God here. That God is all-powerful, he is almighty, and at the same time, he is worthy of the deepest reverence. Daniel keeps this at the forefront of his prayers as he enters in. And not only that, but Daniel goes on to describe him as faithful as well. He's faithful. God isn't this sort of buddy that he's entering into prayer with. Yes, he has relationship with God, but he's not, he, he's not just his buddy. There's something deeper and richer than that. This is the great and awesome God. Daniel goes on that because God is so great, awesome, he can be trusted. He is faithful. He keeps covenant with his people. You see, God had made certain promises to his people. God had promised to bless his people, to care for his people, to continue to multiply his people, to give his people a land and a place, to give them political independence. God had made all of these amazing promises to his people if, the people would follow him 
if the people would be faithful. God has upheld his end of the covenant. God has been faithful, but Daniel recognizes the people have not. The people have not. They have not followed God the way that they had covenanted with him that they would. But Daniel's recognition of who God is is important for so many reasons. As he enters into prayer, as we enter into prayer, we have to remember who we're talking to. We have to remember who we're talking to as we enter into times of prayer. This is God. This is, this is the God who created and sustains all things, every atom. This is the God who has a perfect plan for all of his creation, for all of time. This is the God who is so blindingly brilliant that we couldn't even begin to take him in if we did see him. Right? This is the God whose nature is so beyond comprehension that it's Trinitarian. And we scratch our heads and say, I don't get it. Because that's how great our God is. And yet this God has drawn near to us and opened a way that we might know him and have relationship with him. This is Yahweh who beckons us into relations, who draws his people into relationship with himself. This is who we're addressing when we go to him in prayer. And as we all know, as we all know, the person, our conversation and the manner of our conversation is shaped by our audience and who we're talking to, right? When, when, we're, when we're teaching our kids how to, talk to, uh, how to talk to older people and how to talk to adults, we teach them that there's a right way to speak to adults. There's a right way to approach adults because our audience matters. It's the same way in prayer. As we go to God, we recognize the God that we're talking to, the God who is, who is great and awesome, Right? And so we continue to hold these things before us as we go into prayer. As we come to God, we should come with humble hearts, recognizing who we're speaking to. And this should shape the posture of our prayer life and the content of our prayer life. Now, while God is faithful to the covenant with his people, his people have not been faithful to the covenant made with God. The majority of Daniel's prayer that we're looking at here is a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of confession over, over Judah's sins. In verses 5 to 14, Daniel confesses their sin, and he doesn't hold back any punches. I think oftentimes when we describe our sin or when we confess our sin, we try to sugarcoat it. But we see Daniel doing the exact opposite here. I love the way Daniel just piles up synonyms for the depths of their sinfulness, right? He, uh, in verses five to six, he, th these are just a few examples. It's all throughout the prayer, but in verses five to six, we see sin described as sin, um, wrongdoing, acting wickedly, rebelling, turning aside. We don't see any language like, we messed up, or we, we made a mistake. Did you? Did you really make a mistake? Rebellion isn't just a mistake. Rebellion is something that's far bigger than just a mistake. There's no cute language to try to soften the depths of their sinfulness. There's no comments on the side like, well, you know, no, nobody's perfect. There's no comments like that. Daniel owns the depths of their sin. 
think too often we try to sugarcoat our sin to make it seem not as severe and not so rebellious, to make us feel a little bit better about how calloused our hearts can genuinely be. But we don't see that in Daniel's example. Rather, Daniel steps into the depths and the gravity of his sinfulness. And what, what did God do here in response to his people's sinfulness? We see that he continues to woo his people speaking to them through prophets. So God has acted righteously. God has upheld the covenant while his people are guilty and have continued to break covenant. And just as we read previously in Jeremiah, because of their violation of the covenant, Israel, Judah, were rightly to be punished through exile, through removal from their land. Verse nine, they had rebelled against him. Verse 10, they, uh, they had not obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Verse 11, the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses have been poured out upon us. The curses written in the law of Moses have been poured out upon us. This is probably a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see blessings and curses, for uh, blessings for maintaining covenant with God, and curses for what would happen if you broke covenant with God. And ultimately, those, those are summarized in a final statement in Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, that God would scatter you, scatter Israel among all the people from one end of the earth to the other. A violation, a breaking of this covenant would result in exile. God is not unjust for dealing with his people this way. He's not unloving. He's not unkind. He's not mean. That's not what's happened. Rather, God has been good. God has been faithful. God has been holy. And his people have not. So though he's gone to them over and over again in his great mercy, his people have continued to rebuff them. And it's interesting. Notice here that Daniel When he went into exile in 605 BC, Daniel was only a teenager at the time. So so the majority of the sins, the sins of the people that Daniel is is cataloging here, these happened prior to his birth, right? They, They were already on this track before Daniel was even born. And yet, how does Daniel describe it? He continues to go back to the word over and over again, we. He identifies with the people and their sinfulness. He groups himself in by taking ownership for a sin that he didn't actually even participate in. He has no problem. He has no difficulty in his humility being willing to identify with the sins of others. And so he goes and he petitions God on behalf of the people, on behalf of the Jews who are in exile he confesses their sins together. So, man, this, this bold confession, this bold confession that we see in Daniel, this is a natural response for those who look upon a holy God. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah chapter six, where in the passage, Isaiah in a vision enters into the throne room of God and sees God and the angels declaring holy, 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 right? They, they see him in all of his grandeur and all of his holiness with his train filling up the entire throne room of God. And, and what's Daniel's response as he 
looks upon the greatness of God, what's his response? He confesses that he is sinful. He confesses that he is sinful and he is unworthy to be here. This is what God's people do when they are confronted by the holy. This is what we do when we're confronted by the holy. We recognize that we're not holy, and so we confess. This is another advantage of beginning our prayers in celebration and adoration. It's because it opens the path for genuine confession. You see, you see how it works? God is holy, and I am not. God is loving, and I am not. God is righteous, and I am not. That's how it works. You know, I have a white car, and, uh, and I haven't washed that white car in a couple of months. And my white car still actually looks pretty decent until what happens? Until you drag your finger from one end to the other along the side of my white car. Because as soon as you do that, you will see what is genuinely a white streak going across my car. And all of a sudden, you'll know that my white car is actually no longer white. It is, it is kind of a shade of yellowy brown. But you can't really tell, I can't really tell, until I drag my finger along the side and see the contrast of what genuinely white looks like. When we behold God, when we adore him, when we fix our eyes upon him, then we see the sinfulness in our lives. We see the need for confession. All of a sudden, it becomes clear to us that we're maybe not quite as white as we like to imagine. My sin then becomes clear. So what role does confession play in your prayer life? What role does confession play in your prayer life? Is it a regular part of your prayer life? It's interesting to me that even in the Lord's Prayer, even in the prayer taught to us by Jesus, confession is a, is a part of even that prayer. So if even Jesus is teaching his disciples to confess sin in their prayers, but it isn't maybe a normal part of your prayer life, I think it's fair to ask the question, why not? Why isn't it? Maybe the answer goes back to just the second point that we previously made. Maybe it's because there's not enough adoration of God in your prayer life. Maybe it's because you've gotten so used to praying only for parking spots instead of taking time to adore God and all of his excellencies to see the white line on the car. Maybe that's why confession isn't a major part in your prayer life, recognizing the depths of your sinfulness. And if you are struggling, might I encourage you to go to God. And if you're struggling to think of what to confess, maybe just begin by confessing that you don't know what to confess. Maybe simply beginning there and saying, I honestly, I'm struggling to see the sins in my life right now. I'm struggling to see the weaknesses. I'm struggling to see where I'm falling short. I'm struggling to see how far off of the holy mark I am. God, change my heart. Allow me to see what's genuinely there because I guarantee you for every single person in this room, there is an ample amount to be in confession over. There is an ample amount. 
Daniel continues on with a call for change in verses 15 to 19. He continues on with a call of change, transitioning from confession to supplication for the people. Daniel, uh, Daniel cites God's past work in the Exodus and implicitly, as we were singing previously, asked God to do it again. Right? He asked God to do it again. The people have sinned, they, 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 and then now they're looking to God for a new exodus, a fulfillment of the promises given to Jeremiah. Even as Daniel moves through this final paragraph of prayer, he's slow to make his really explicit request, continuing to mingle together praises to God and confessions of their sinfulness. But Daniel's request begins to take on clarity as we move through the passage. Verse 16, turn your wrath away. Verse 17, listen to the prayer and his pleas. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary. At this, which at this point, the sanctuary no longer existed and still hasn't been rebuilt yet. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. Daniel is seeking for the restoration of the people to return again out of exile to the promised land. And so, and so in one sense, that's the main request of verses 15 and 19. But notice there's actually a deeper level here. There's something deeper that Daniel's seeking out in verses 15 to 19. If you look at the passage, there's something you'll see over and over again. Well, there's a handful of things you'll see over and over again. Um, there's a request for God's own name. A request for God's own name. Now, this expression, for your name, it appears in verses 15 and 18 and 19 as a way of expressing, right? This really meant seeking out your reputation or for your glory or so that people would make much of you. Even more poignantly, Daniel writes, for your own sake, in verses 17 and 19, which means the very same thing as for your name. Um, again, for your glory. And more implicitly, though it's probably Daniel's point with, with the reiteration of your throughout this passage, like in your city Jerusalem, or your holy hill, or your people have become a byword, which all kind of culminates then in verse 19, because your city and your people, this is God, right? Because your city and your people are called by your name. In other words, what Daniel is saying here is, is return your people, reestablish your people, bring your people back together for your glory. Because this is about you. It's not even ultimately about us. It's not ultimately about us, God. The most important thing, the most fundamental thing here is your glory, your reputation that you would be made much of throughout to the ends of the earth. That's the most fundamental thing here. Or getting to how Jesus described it in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. All of this ultimately is for God's glory that he would be made much of. It's not, yeah, yeah, it, it, yes, it's important for the people to be restored to their land. Absolutely, I don't want to diminish that factor. But Daniel's driving at something even more fundamental here, that all of this is ultimately about God. 
and to make it fundamentally about anything else than God is idolatry. To say that it's ultimately about me is to put me over God. To say that it's ultimately about a nation would be to put a nation over God. To put, put anything else, to make anything else more fundamental than God is ultimately idolatry. The only thing that is rightly to be the highest priority is God. Anything else is idolatry. So all of this, all of it is about him. So ultimately, maybe, maybe, we, could, maybe we could restate what Daniel is saying. Daniel is saying, do it again, Lord, for your glory. You get the glory by delivering, delivering your people from the most unimaginable of situations, just like you did when you deliver, delivered a ragtag group of people from the most powerful nation in the world in the original Exodus. Do it again. Do it again. Bring your people back to their home and you get the glory as the only one who could possibly who could possibly ever pull this off so that all the nations would look on and say, wow, that is the true almighty God. That is the God who is awesome and great. You see, not only has Daniel's reading of scripture shaped his adoration of God and his confession to God, but it's even shaped his petition to God. It's even shaped his very request to God so that every element of this prayer is a Holy Spirit-formed, God's will-shaped, powerful petition for God's glory. Daniel has offered up a powerful prayer to God that's shaped by God's will to accomplish God's purposes. Daniel's prayers were used in powerful ways to serve as an example to others, an example for us to follow. But brothers and sisters, we have something even better than Daniel's prayer. We don't just have an example to follow, but we have something even better because we have a great high priest who has brought us into the very throne room of God according to Hebrews chapter 4 who has brought us into the very throne room of God so that we can stand before God. We have a new and better Daniel who doesn't just identify with the sins of his people, but actually takes the sins of his people on himself and instead gives them righteousness that they haven't earned. We have a new and better Daniel who brings us into the very presence of God so that we can draw near to the throne of grace in boldness. We have something even better. Jesus has brought us near. And not only that, but we have a spirit. We have a spirit who's at work within us, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words, so that on every side of us, on every side of us, we have God. We are buttressed in every way by God's presence as we bend the knee in prayer. So whereas Daniel was left praying to God from Babylon, when we pray to God, we are in the very presence of God, in the throne room of God, standing before his presence because of what his sin, because of what his son has accomplished through his death and his resurrection. If you are visiting with us this morning, if you are visiting with us and you are stirred to pray, and you are stirred to pray, but you don't know God, you haven't taken that step, you haven't trusted in Christ, you haven't, you haven't gone to him, 
I invite you, I invite you to embrace him, to put your faith in him because he has done what you never could and he is waiting to bring you into the very presence of God so that you also can be involved in praying powerful prayers just like we see in the example of Daniel. If you're here this morning and you're looking for your prayer life to be revitalized, if you're looking for your prayer life to be revitalized, I encourage you to look at Daniel's example Daniel's example is a rich example of how we can have a fruitful, powerful prayer life. A prayer life that is shaped by God's word and his promises. Shaped by God's will so that we might know what God is calling us to when we pray. We need to comprehend the promises of the word of God. A prayer life that is shaped by celebrating God's character celebrating who God is, adoring him and all, all of his characteristics and all of his attributes, recognizing rightly who he is. A prayer life marked by confession, confession of our sinfulness, because again, that is the natural response of God's people when they see holiness, that we would be a people who are confessing our, our sins. And finally, finally, a prayer life that is marked by a call for change, that we would petition God to move powerfully for his will and for his glory. This is the sort of prayer life that we want as believers. Do you want to see a revitalized prayer life? Go to God's word and let him lead you in what prayers can look like. I invite you. There is no time. (laughs) It is never too late. It is never too late. God wants us to be a people who Pray bold, powerful prayers to draw near to him. So I ask, what's standing in your way? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you. God, you are, you are great and you are awesome. Father, so much greater, so much more awesome than we can even begin to fathom. I pray these thoughts about who you are, about your faithfulness, about your goodness, about your holiness would continue just to enthrall our hearts. Father, that we would be overwhelmed. God, please continue to draw us to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would use your word powerfully to shape our prayers so that we might enjoy richer and fuller prayers as we enter into your presence. Father, we thank you for your son who has made a way. We thank you for your spirit who intercedes. God, please, please continue to work powerfully. We pray this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Please stand for the, band, for the benediction. This comes out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Have a good day. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, 
along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.